Hello, my name's Dr. Gary Brooke, and I'm a clinician in HIV and sexual health in Northwest London. And today we're going to be discussing the paper Infectious Syphilis Unmasking Drug Resistance in an Individual with Long-Term Biological Suppression on Antiretroviral Therapy, which is a case report in sexually transmitted infections. I also have with me another associate editor from STI, Khalil Ghanem, as the authors are not available. So Khalil, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure, Gary. Hi, my name is Khalil Ghanem, and I'm a member of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore in the United States, and happy to be here. The case is about a 39-year-old gay man who is HIV positive and uh, has been on antiretroviral therapy since 1999. And he was doing well from the HIV point of view. He was virologically suppressed on navarapine plus various nucleoside analog backbones until about 2008 when he presented with what seems to be uh, early syphilis and he had um, both serological evidence of early syphilis and symptoms to suggest the oropharynx as a primary site of infection with an ulcer on the tonsil and some pharyngitis. Uh, the authors particularly think this is an unusual case in as much as at the time of the presentation with syphilis, he also lost control of his HIV and his viral load went up to over 1100. And uh, on resistance testing at that time, uh, various antiretrovirus resistance mutations were detected, including one to NNRTIs, one to a nucleoside analog, and interestingly, a minor PI mutation as, as well. And the authors then speculate as to what uh, might have caused this chain of events and, and seem to come down particularly on uh, the idea that it was some sort of immune event which led to the loss of control of the HIV and leading on to resistance. I'd like to start by asking Khalil, what do you think about um, his HIV presentation? It's uh, quite an unusual presentation in, in a way, isn't it, with primary site possibly in the oropharynx? Yeah, Gary, um, we often think about extragenital sexually transmitted infections, and the first infections that come to mind are gonorrhea and chlamydia, but we can't forget that syphilis can also present as an extragenital infection, primarily primary syphilis, uh, where the chancre can occur wherever the exposure, uh, in fact, occurred. In this case, it's difficult to say for sure whether the patient did have primary syphilis and this uh, tonsillar ulcer was uh, indeed due to a primary infection, mainly because Darfield microscopy, which um, we often can do on genital lesions, uh, is nonspecific in the setting of oral ulcers because of the presence of non-pathogenic treponin in the oral cavity. And then uh, direct fluorescent antibodies that can be done or that could be done, uh, the problem is that reagent agents currently are not available to do that. The only thing that can be done is PCR, and in this case, uh, it was probably not uh, available. However, another thing that could have been helpful in this case to uh, help us 
better document the fact that this was most likely a primary syphilitic chancre would have been a history of exposure, unprotected exposure, uh, receptive or with receptive oral sex, and we weren't given that in the uh, in the case report. However, this patient clearly has early syphilis since his uh, serologies a year earlier had been negative, uh, and I suspect most likely that he had primary syphilis with an extra genital chancre, although uh, I cannot be definitive about that. Yeah, the other thing that struck me is that they didn't speak about any um, cervical lymphadenopathy as well. Would would you not have expected that with primary syphilis of the RFR? You would. You would have definitely expected that, but uh, just like in uh, genital syphilis, uh, many patients who do have a primary chancre may not manifest the regional lymphadenopathy. So I I don't think it rules out completely the possibility that this is a primary chancre, but again, I think it's a tough call to make given the limited amount of information we have. Sure. So so the bottom line is we would have liked more information, particularly, I suppose, in this this case, a PCR swab from the ulcer would have been uh, especially helpful. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, because presumably the um, the problem about doing uh, dark field microscopy and oropharyngeal samples is that you, you, you get lots of spirochetes in the oropharynx anyway, and then you've got to be absolutely clear what you're looking at is uh, T. pallidum. Exactly, and so it's difficult to be specific about which organism we're looking at, so it makes it difficult. And the lack of reagents for the direct fluorescent antibody has also made it more difficult to be uh, to detect these. But I think the, the clinical history, uh, given the patient's history, it's highly suggestive of a, a primary chancre in the oropharynx. Yeah. What do you think about this story about the syphilis causing loss of control of the HIV? Is, is viral load went up? Is, is this a, a phenomenon that you often see with um, early syphilis? Well, there have been several papers published in the past few years that suggested that early syphilis can cause a transient increase in the HIV viral load uh, and a concomitant decline in CD4 cell counts. There was one such paper that was published in 2007 by a Spanish researcher. Her name was Rosario Palacios. And she described uh, over 100 patients with uh, HIV uh, who were infected with syphilis in the uh, early stages. And what they found was that about 30% of these patients had a, uh, an elevated HIV RNA and uh, a decrease, a decline in their CD4 uh, cell counts. And among those 30%, uh, a little over half of those actually were on highly active antiretroviral therapy. Mm. So this phenomenon has been described previously and is uh, rather intriguing. It would be interesting to know exactly what the mechanism is that, that, that's causing this. I'm sure some clever immunologist will, would be able to tell us, but I, I, I certainly can't visualize it myself at the moment. I'll ask you now what your thoughts yeah. are on the detection of this resistant virus in this case. I mean, yeah. was the resistance, do you think the resistance was there all along? Did it develop because there was uh, increased viral replication? Do you have an alternate explanation for all of this? The authors put forward a theory that this raised viral load, the phenomenon that you've described where people get syphilis and get a raised viral load, that might have somehow awakened a dormant virus which was already carrying these resistance mutations and caused that to emerge and leading to um, loss of control. I say loss of control because uh, one one other very unusual thing is that the uh, viral load became undetectable um, even though they did not change this patient's treatment at 
at first, and the, the patient at the time was on tenofovir, um, FTC, and nevirapine, and yet he had the M184I FTC-resistant mutation, and he had the G190A nevirapine-resistance mutation. So you wouldn't have expected him to uh, suppress uh, within that background, but he, but he did. So that, that, that's unusual in itself. So they suggest that one possibility, and seem to put it as a strong possibility, is emergent of dormant virus carrying these mutations, although they do, of course, say that it could be due to the patient not taking his treatment properly during this episode. Against that, they they suggest that as the man had been fully suppressed for almost 10 years, they thought that second explanation was unlikely because they had a good track record of um, adherence to, to treatment. But one thing they didn't discuss um, was whether this was super infection or not. There's a, quite a bit of evidence, both in the HIV world and, and, and certainly in, in, within other chronic viruses such as hepatitis C, that superinfection is relatively common. And certainly we know that in, in hepatitis C, something like 5% or more of, of patients with chronic hepatitis C, gay men with chronic hepatitis C, over time will display new genotypes, and in some studies even, even higher rates than that. So we know that superinfection, in, particularly in gay men having multiple partners and unprotected sex, um, is, is a common enough phenomenon. Um, and what points me towards superinfection in this particular case is that um, as well as having the two mutations I'd already um, mentioned, he also had a G73S minor protease mutation. Now, according to the authors, this man had not been on a protease at any time. And um, looking through the Stanford database, it, it says quite specifically that the G73S PI mutation is normally only seen in people on protease inhibitors. So, again, I suppose it's possible that, that he could have had this resistant virus right from the time he was uh, infected 10 years ago. But my hunch is that this, in fact, was a case of superinfection rather than any of the other explanations. Why did he suppress? I haven't a clue. He really should not have suppressed. Uh, and that then sort of brings me to the area of was some of the phenomena we're seeing explained by different viral, viral load assays? And I say this specifically because um, around about 2008-2009 um, was the time that the uh, Roche-Tackman version 1.5 came into being, and then in 2009 the Roche-Tackman version uh, 2.0. And there's been quite a lot of discussion. In, indeed, I presented a paper my, myself looking at rates of um, low-level detectability with the Roche-Tackman assay. And you find that you, particularly in, in early use of, of this assay, you get quite a lot of variability. Uh, but also, if you don't follow the recipe precisely as to how to prepare your specimen for the assay, you can get false positive viral loads as well. So uh, in amongst all of that, I just wonder whether the assay they were using was also muddying the water. Clearly, it did have a viremia because they detected it and was able, were able to do a genotypic resistance test on it. But, it, but it, it is intriguing to try and understand why he suppressed despite the major NNRTI mutation and the major nucleoside analog mutation as well. So given what you just said, um, would you have felt comfortable keeping him on the same uh, heart regimen, uh, or do you think the authors were right to switch regimens at this point? No, I, I think they were right to, to switch it, but they did something that a lot of people do, and I personally am not 
completely comfortable with, and that is continuing with um, either uh, FTC or 3TC uh, in someone who has the M184V or M184I mutation. It, it seems to me that if you're giving antiretroviral therapy, you're doing it to suppress replication, and therefore you, all the components of your treatment should be aimed at suppression. And they gave him tenofovir, FTC, and um, boosted once a day Doranivir. So it, it seems slightly nonsensical to me to give 3TC, oh, sorry, FTC in this case, in someone already with M184I. The, the, the reason why it's given is, in theory, it maintains the M184I mutation um, in the predominant strain of HIV present. And um, as M184I and M184V uh, mutated viruses replicate less well, um, then it may ha- add something to virological control. Um, but I think the the alternative argument, and certainly one that I would follow, is I would give three agents all which, according to the genotypic resistance, would aim to fully suppress the virus. And, you know, this theoretical uh, idea of maintaining M184I to, to maintain a damaged virus, I'm, I'm not sure is, is a valid or legitimate way to go. Could you have added a third agent and kept the uh, FTC on board as uh, an alternate solution? Well, you could do that. Then you, clearly you're into the um, realm of quadruple therapy and then you yeah. have polypharmacy and, and expense. But his only nucleoside analog mutation uh, was the M184I. So um, the only drugs that were excluded were FTC, 3TC, and possibly Abacavir, but the rest of the nucleoside analog armory was still available, not to mention various other drugs um, outside of these classes. So uh, my personal choice would have been not to uh, have given FTC as part of the regimen. In saying that, and we're perhaps going a a little way off beam here now, in the light of the ongoing multinational trial of protease uh, monotherapy, in someone with a low level of viremia, um, I often nowadays, but usually part of the, as part of a clinical trial, but often offer them the choice of going on, on to a protease monotherapy now. So at the very least, I think we could agree that he would need careful follow-up both for his HIV and for his syphilis in, in the short term. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, and, and, and indeed, in, the, in, in this patient, he, he became virologically controlled and his syphilis was well-treated and, and, and disappeared. So he, he, he certainly did have a good, good outcome. It, it is interesting, though, why these things happened, particularly the, why the virological resistance happened. And, and I think that, that's the main question uh, arising from this paper. It's always difficult with case reports to see if there's anything new or interesting that can come out of a a single case and and one would like to see uh, multiple cases as in the hundred cases you quoted from uh, from Spain. So it's always difficult to draw any significant conclusions from a a single case. But if if this case is significant in, in as much as it does tell us that virological control is lost in people with HIV and who get early syphilis, and they are at, therefore at risk of loss of developing resistance, then perhaps it is an important lesson. But as I say, I'm, perhaps an equally valid question in, in this case is 
was he super infected with HIV at the same time as syphilis and perhaps we ought to be looking for that more. Unfortunately this man didn't have any um, any previous data on the viral clade uh, so it wasn't possible for them to compare the viral type before the, the infection with syphilis and after to see if in fact he developed a new clade. I mean this also ultimately brings up uh, I think an interesting question with the increasing use of highly active antiretroviral therapy, which has really been shown to be an important determinant in decreasing the numbers of um, new HIV infections. I mean, in this light and uh, knowing what we know about this case uh, and the potential impact of syphilis on HIV, it really highlights that um, STI prevention really takes on an even more important or urgent role in the setting. What's especially made it important is the new optimism that has occurred in the HIV world in the, in the last couple of years. We had the um, statement from the um, Swiss AIDS Society saying that uh, in their view, if someone had an undetectable viral load for greater than six months, then the chances of them passing HIV onto an uninfected partner was small or negligible. Now, I know that there have been various other caveats added to that, both by themselves and by, by others. I think the message that's getting out there is, well, for someone who's HIV positive, as long as I'm undetectable and on antiretroviral therapy, it's okay to go out and have unprotected sex, and I'm not going to pass on my HIV. But uh, as you've pointed out, this case suggests that that not, may not be entirely the case, and if they get an STI, the viral load may go up, and particularly so in syphilis, isn't it? I think syphilis is, is your area. Is there an especial high risk of acquisition or transmission of HIV within the setting of, of syphilis, Khalil? In terms of genital ulcer diseases, and most of the studies have looked at genital ulcer diseases in general, with syphilis in particular, uh, there is clearly uh, good evidence that the uh, transmission dynamics of HIV uh, within a partnership are significantly altered. So certainly in the presence of uh, genital ulcer diseases, the likelihood of transmitting HIV significantly increased. And, um, and not only that, I mean, in this case, I think it, it highlights that uh, even on ART therapy and suppressive ART therapy, there is the potential to increase the risk of transmission uh, in the setting of an acute uh, syphilitic episode. Uh, it also might even suggest the possibility that uh, these STIs might enhance viral replication and even potentially lead to the emergence of drug-resistant uh, virus. So it might have an impact not only on transmission, but it might have an impact on the individual who actually gets infected, uh, as it could have uh, a potential impact on the HIV, although that's not uh, of course, uh, clearly demonstrated in this case, but it should certainly uh, keep us aware of the um, the potential both to the uninfected partners and to the uh, to the patient. I think it really highlights the strong bond that has uh, linked both syphilis and HIV since the dawn of the um, HIV epidemic. It really, I think, pushes us to continue to advocate for a strong prevention program, even in the setting of more widespread use of highly active antiretroviral therapy. Yeah, and I, I agree. I think the bottom line is, despite the optimism about HIV, the, the better outcome, improved prognosis, and, and in many circumstances, lower transmission rate, that is not the same thing as saying that we shouldn't um, counsel safer sex, because we shouldn't forget 
other STIs, and we shouldn't forget, as in this case, the potential for other STIs increasing the likelihood of transmission and possibly, in this, as in this case, resistance as well. So uh, I think that's an important message, which I think probably is where we should end in this discussion, unless you've got anything else to say. I agree with you completely. Okay, thank you. Well, that concludes our discussion about this case. And uh, for those of you who are interested, uh, this uh, case report was published in the August edition of uh, Sexually Transmitted Infections. The title of the paper is Infectious Syphilis, Unmasking Drug Resistance in an Individual with Long-Term Virological Suppression on Antiretroviral Therapy. Thank you.